Hello, everyone, and welcome to the May 19th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our weekly news. The Medicare fraud strike force in six cities charged 90 individuals for their alleged participation in Medicare fraud schemes involving hundreds of millions of dollars. Eight of the people charged operated in the Los Angeles area. The strike force is part of the Healthcare Fraud Prevention and Enforcement Action Team, a joint initiative of the Justice Department and the Health and Human Services Department. Among the eight in the Los Angeles area, two are doctors, several run medical supply companies, and the rest are marketers. The group is responsible for $32 million in fraudulent payments for equipment that was not necessary and for treatments that were never provided. Among the individuals charged in California are Robert A. Glazer, a doctor at Glazer Medical Clinic in Los Angeles. Glazer allegedly billed for services that were never provided. He also allegedly received kickbacks for signing home health care certificates that were not necessary and for prescribing equipment like power wheelchairs that were not needed. Between 2006 and 2014, Glazer was paid $735,000 by Medicare. Medical equipment equipment companies were paid $2.6 million based on Glazer's false prescriptions and home health care agencies received $16.4 million based on his prescriptions. Also, the owner of EaseCore 900, a durable medical equipment company in Valencia, was involved. The company received nearly $2 million in payments from Medicare. The owner of Eastern Medical Supply in Inglewood was arrested. She worked with a doctor who wrote fraudulent prescriptions for power wheelchairs. She would pay marketers and doctors kickbacks for referring Medicare beneficiaries. The owner of Colonial Medical Supply in Van Nuys was also arrested. Numerous patient recruiters and marketers were also involved in the bust. These recruiters found Medicare beneficiaries and took them to a doctor for prescriptions they did not need and worked with the medical supplier to submit fraudulent claims. Recruiters received six to $700 per beneficiary. Michael Adams and Brenda Adams, the owners of Poor Reds, a restaurant in Diamond Springs, were sentenced for failing to report about $1,300,000 in taxes and for insurance fraud. Poor Reds opened in 1948 and is best known for its signature drink, the Golden Cadillac, a frothy blend of Galliano, half and half, white cream de caco, and ice. Defendant Michael Adams was sentenced to six years, eight months in state prison and ordered to pay about $630,000 in restitution. His wife, defendant Brenda Adams, was sentenced to a year in county jail and also ordered to pay restitution. The sentence was the result of guilty pleas to eight felony counts, including insurance fraud, tax evasion, and an admission of an aggravated white-collar crime enhancement. This case was textbook an example of multi-agency collaboration and joint investigation by the California Board of Equalization, the Employment Development Department, the Franchise Tax Board, the Department of Insurance, and investigators from El Dorado County District Attorney's Office. 
A Paso Robles man was arrested for allegedly failing to correctly report his employee payroll to the state compensation insurance fund. 53-year-old J. Scott Silva, owner of Drywall Dynamics, was arrested by the San Luis Obispo County District Attorney's Office and booked into the county jail on two felony counts of workers' compensation insurance fraud. The California Department of Insurance began its investigation after the Carpenters Contractors Cooperation Committee notified the department's fraud division of Silva's improper conduct regarding employee wages. Department investigators determined that Silva was incorrectly reporting employee payroll, which reduced his rate of paid premium by $67,000. If convicted, Silva faces a maximum of five years in jail, possible fines, and full restitution. Bail was set at $30,000. And in regulatory news, the WCAB and the DWC have created a new form and made modifications to two existing forms for use in the electronic adjudication management system known as EAMS. The new and modified forms are posted on the DWC's website. The changes were necessitated by SB 863. The forms are 10214A1, the stipulations with request for an award, 10208.3, declaration of readiness to proceed for an expedited trial, 10232.2, the document separator sheet, 10214A1, stipulations for request for an award for a date of injury after 1-1-2013. The current form of stipulations with the request for an award remains in use for e-form and OCR filers for injuries before January 1, 2013. A study issued by the Workers' Compensation Research Institute shows that medical costs for injured workers in California moderated before the sweeping reforms were implemented under SB 863. CompScope Medical Benchmarks for California's 14th edition provides baseline data for monitoring the impact of SB 863, which took effect in 2013. For the study, the WCRI compared changes implemented through SB 863 with reforms in other states. The goal of the study was to set benchmarks for such systems in order to weigh their costs and benefits. Researchers found that in 2010 and 2011, medical payments per claim in California grew by about 3%, which was down from 8% annual growth since 2005. The TROP was attributed to stability of prices paid for professional services and use of non-hospital services. However, hospital payments per inpatient visit increased significantly between 2006 and 2011. Governor Brown has now signed AB 1035 into law. This new law provides an extension for dependents of deceased firefighters and peace officers to file for workers' compensation death benefits who died from cancer, tuberculosis, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus or skin infections or blood-borne infection disease. This extension is for up to 420 weeks from the date of injury or slightly more than eight years, but in no case more than one year from the date of death. 
This extension will sunset on January 1, 2019. This bill further requires the DWC to study mortality rates prior to extending or allowing the extension to sunset. Governor Brown issued a signing statement that noted the prior year he had vetoed AB 1373, which was a similar bill asking for more research and fiscal data on the risks of death from cancer and other job-related diseases on firefighters. A National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health study on mortality and cancer incidents on U.S. firefighters is now available for review and provides better data on the fiscal impacts of this bill. A review of this data anticipates that fewer than 20 cases a year throughout the state would be affected if the provisions only apply to diseases diagnosed during active service. Therefore, Governor Brown signed AB 1035 to extend the time period to file a claim for workers' compensation benefits. The bill has been drafted to apply only if the date of injury is during active service as defined in Labor Code Section 5412. And in medical news, over the past decade, the widespread use of Schedule II and Schedule III opioid analgesics to manage both acute and chronic pain has become a hotly debated issue. The volume of, volume of prescriptions for these drugs has grown despite a growing body of evidence linking their long-term use to adverse outcomes, including delayed recoveries, functional impairment, increased sensitivity to pain, addiction overdoses, and death. A new CWCI study updates the earlier analyses that examine utilization and reimbursement trends for Schedule II and III opioids in the California workers' compensation system. The new findings show that in the first half of 2013, Schedule II opioids, which include powerful narcotics such as OxyContin, Fentanyl and morphine have grown to 7.3% of California workers' compensation prescriptions, nearly six times the proportion noted in 2002. Over the same period, payments for these drugs have increased from 4.7% to 19.6% of California workers' compensation prescription dollars. The data also suggests that the use of Schedule II drugs and workers' compensation may have stabilized near this record level over the most recent three and a half years. Since 2002, less powerful Schedule III opioids have accounted for a much more consistent share of workers' compensation prescription drugs, generally representing around 20% of all prescriptions dispensed to injured workers and 10 to 11% of the overall drug spend. The analysis for Schedule II opioid prescriptions reveals that a relatively small percentage of providers continue to account for the vast majority of these prescriptions in the California workers' compensation industry. The more recent data show the top 10% of the doctors who wrote these prescriptions accounted for 82% of the prescriptions and 86% of the payments. The prescribing patterns data also found that more than eight out of 10 physicians who ranked among the top 3% of Schedule II opioid prescribers in 2012 and 2013 were also in the top 3% back in 2010. Almost half 
of all Schedule II prescriptions were for relatively minor injuries for which the use of these drugs is not supported by evidence-based medicine. These findings suggest that the widespread publicity about the dangers associated with opioid medications, the public policy efforts to curb the utilization and costs of these drugs through the adoption of chronic pain medical treatment guidelines and the pharmacy fee schedule, and the attempts to tighten controls over the use of Schedule II and III drugs through utilization review have thus far had limited success in reducing system-wide use. A new study in the Journal of Occupational and Environmental Medicine reveals a negative impact on medical costs, indemnity costs, and lost time from work on workers' compensation claims when physicians, rather than pharmacies, dispense necartic-related drugs to injured workers within the first 90 days of injury. The authors of this study studied a sample of nearly 7,000 workers' compensation and indemnity claims that were opened and closed between 2007 and 2012. The number of prescriptions per claim and pharmaceutical, medical, and indemnity costs, as well as time off of work, were significantly higher in claims where a pharmaceutical was dispensed by a physician. These differences persisted, controlling for age, sex, attorney involvement, and injury complexity. The major findings of the study align with previous research on physician-dispensed repackaged drugs in the state of California by the California Workers' Compensation Institute. The authors note that these studies leave little doubt that physician dispensing of medications, especially opioid medications, results in poor outcomes for injured workers. Longer recoveries, more time away from work, and increased medical costs are all unfortunate outcomes of these prescribing practices. In the last several years, there has been a surge in the costs and quantity of drugs dispensed from physicians' offices in workers' compensation cases. When opioids were dispensed by the physician, the medical costs were 78% higher, the indemnity costs were 57% higher, and the number of days off work were 85% higher than in cases where pharmacies did the dispensations. Findings published in the February online issue of Spine shows that patients who have a low back surgery called minimally invasive Transforminal lumbar interbody fusion end up better off in many ways than patients who have more invasive surgery to alleviate debilitating pain. Lumbar fusion serves to eliminate abnormal motion and instability while maintaining load-bearing capacity and proper alignment. The surgery provides symptomatic treatment for spinal instability stenosis, spondylolisthesis, and symptomatic degenerative disc disease. During the past few decades, there have been a dramatic increase in the rates of lumbar fusion procedures in the United States. For many surgical procedures, the method of choice is shifting from traditional open surgery to minimally invasive techniques. Postoperative studies have demonstrated that conventional open techniques are associated with increased scar tissue formation, significant muscle stripping, and muscle retraction 
which adversely affect outcomes and increase reoperation rates. Minimally invasive techniques are performed by way of a muscle dilating approach that helps to preserve paraspinal muscular anatomy and bone architecture and has been shown to diminish iatrogenic soft tissue injury significantly. Reasons for widespread transition to minimally invasive spine techniques include decreased postoperative pain, decreased intraoperative blood loss, shorter postoperative hospital stay, faster return to normal activity, and reduced reoperation rates. Use of minimally invasive fusion techniques in lieu of traditional open fusion techniques remains a crucible of debate as long-term prospective outcomes in patients undergoing minimally invasive spinal fusion for debilitating back pain has not been well studied. This new study found that minimally invasive procedures with smaller incisions can reduce chronic low back pain, hospital stays, and complications. It also can lower costs and infection rates compared with more invasive open procedures. The seven-year study looked at 304 patients who received the minimally invasive procedure. The study concluded that the minimally invasive approach seems to provide both short and long-term statistically significant outcome improvements in patients experiencing debilitating low back pain. From a clinical perspective, these patients showed an extremely high rate of satisfaction in their treatment of their chronic back pain disorders. And in financial news, a report by NCCI says there are signs that the workers' compensation market is returning to a state of balance. Today, industry costs are largely contained, claims frequency continues to decline, and the system in most states is operating efficiently. In short, the market is operating as it should on behalf of most stakeholders. Overall, the workers' compensation line showed a number of positive results in 2013. Premiums grew for the third consecutive year, and at the same time, the combined ratio fell by seven points. The overall reserve position for private carriers improved in 2013, following a five-consecutive-year of deterioration. The workers' compensation residual market experienced a second straight year of significant growth in 2013. Premiums grew by more than 30%, and the average market share in the residual market increased from 7% to 8%. And CCI's latest data shows the pace of growth has slowed in the first quarter of 2014. Another good news, lost time claim frequency maintained a path of decline in 2013, down 2% on average. The 2% decline is within NCCI's long-term annual estimate of a 2% to 4% decline per year. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates for past editions of our news and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd's Karen Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.